Hello, this is episode 303 and in it, I'm talking with Jenna Cohen, Director of Honeycomb Access and Design. In this first part of my conversation with Jenna, you'll learn more about the updates to the National Construction Code 2022 when it comes to accessible design and the livable housing guidelines. I discussed these in more detail in episode 286 at the beginning of this series uh, on the NCC 2022. So if you want to hear what the specific updates are, then you can go back to that episode and have a listen. Now, in the conversations that I've been having with homeowners since these proposed updates, uh, came out and then have been incorporated in various locations and dates given to when they're going to be updated in local uh, legislation. I've heard frustration at these changes and for some it feels like there's a bunch of requirements that aren't relevant for them in their personal home. It is worth understanding up front though that livable as it's discussed in the NCC and accessible, they're not one and the same and these latest updates, they're not necessarily accessibility specific. So they will, however, help your home be more functional for varying physical abilities over the long term, which can only be a good thing. So have a listen in as Jenna will help you understand more about what to consider in your future home for compliance and longevity. And we discuss what to be aware of generally. Now, remember, if you'd like to grab a full transcript of this episode, uh, plus links and extra resources, you can do that by heading to www.undercoverarchitect.com forward slash 303. That's numbers 303. Now let's dive in. I begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of country throughout Australia, and I recognise the continuing connection to lands, waters, skies and communities. I pay my respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and to elders both past and present. If we haven't met before, I'm Amelia Lee, the architect behind Undercover Architect. Based in northern New South Wales, Australia, I'm a wife, mum and architect, and I've been working in the architectural industry since 1993. I founded Undercover Architect in mid-2014 and since then it has operated online to help and teach homeowners like you how to get it right when designing, building or renovating your home. Undercover Architect supports hundreds of thousands of homeowners across the world through their project journeys via this podcast, the website and our online courses and programs, including my flagship online program, Home Method. Consider Undercover Architect your secret ally. Whoever you're working with and whatever your dreams, your location or your budget, it's here to support and guide you on this ambitious journey of yours. Grab access to my free online workshop, Your Project Plan, and learn super helpful information to save time, money and stress in your reno or new build. You can find it at www.undercoverarchitect.com forward slash project plan. That's P-R-O-J-E-C-T-P-L-A-N. Now let's get into the episode. Now, before I jump into my conversation with Jenna, let me introduce her to you. So Jenna is the director of Honeycomb Access and Design, an access consulting firm that supports construction professionals to create beautiful, accessible and compliant designs. Jenna is also the co-founder of Flying Fox, an impactful not-for-profit organisation that provides social sleepaway programs, connecting over 1,500 young people with and without disability. Combining her background in architecture and passion for disability inclusion, Jenna founded Honeycomb Access and Design with a clear mission to redefine accessibility beyond checkboxes. Jenna believes that inclusion is a fundamental human right and our diverse community deserves equal and equitable access. 
Now, you'll hear me start this episode by talking about our search to find someone who is going to be suitable to discuss the updates regarding the livable housing design to the National Construction Code 2022 that I wanted to bring on the podcast. I, you know, I really wanted to find someone who could discuss this in a way where it didn't feel like a compliance obligation, but instead a new and different way to think about your home's design and its ability to better support you long term, as well as be more inclusive as part of the built environment overall. Jenna shares her thoughts on the latest updates to the NCC 2022 and takes us through some of the specifics that I know have been causing concern with the homeowners that I've been speaking with. So she'll help you understand more about these details. Her architectural training and personal passion to create a more inclusive, livable, durable and accessible built environment means that she's well placed to support us in understanding the relevance of these changes to all of us. Let's jump into my conversation with Jenna now. Well, Jenna, it is so awesome to have you here. You Finding you was the result of a very long hunt for my team and I to find somebody that could really speak to some of the changes that have been made to the National Construction Code. From a point of view, I'm hoping that homeowners will be able to understand the relevance of it to their own life and their own situation, regardless of what their own physical requirements might be or what their long-term plans and intentions for their home might be. And it was funny because when we were researching about who could we bring on and who was going to be super be able to be super helpful and do it in a way where it didn't feel like it was all just about these things being applied to you by some legislation that really is of no interest to you, we were finding it really hard to find somebody that we thought could we could bring on. So I'm really, really excited to be able to meet you and to have you here and to be able to share you with the Undercover Architect community because... I know that your work and what you do on a day-to-day basis um, has a lot of relevance for for so many people and for the undercover architect community get to get an insight to that and then to see how it might apply to their own projects as they're thinking about building and renovating is going to be really, really awesome. And then, of course, to understand the role that the updates to the National Construction Code 2022 are making in all of that um, decision-making as well. So before we dive in, though, perhaps you could just tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into the work that you're doing at Honeycomb Access and Design. Of course. Well, firstly, thank you so much for having me and inviting me. Since you invited me, I've been really enjoying your podcast and all the episodes. So I'm excited to to use the home method when um, I do my renovation in a few years, hopefully. Yeah, I I started Honeycomb now about three years ago and my background's in architecture. I am nearly registered. I've done the exam, I've passed and I'm about to to, to actually sign the forms and register as an architect finally. Oh, congratulations. Um, That's massive. Thank you. Yes, (laughs) very exciting. And I guess my journey started when I was studying architecture and I was really enjoying it, but I found there wasn't enough connection to people and specifically um, people with disability. And my interest and passion in working in the disability sector started when I was in high school where I just became friends with a, a girl who I'm still friends with today and she has an intellectual disability. And we bonded, created a friendship and I realized there were so many more people who could benefit from social experiences like her. So when I finished school, my now husband and I and some friends started a charity called Flying Fox, um, which is about to turn 10. Um, and Flying Fox is a charity that supports young people with intellectual disability, creating social fun opportunities for them. I think to date they've supported, well, I say they because I'm not so involved on the ground anymore, but about 1,500 people with and without disability. 
Wow. So it's it's a fantastic organisation. I'm definitely biased. Um, but founding that charity alongside studying architecture definitely made me think about how architecture can fit into the disability sector. So I literally Googled architecture and disability and I found a, a, a man who works as an access consultant and I went to work for him. Um, and, yeah, since have been working for uh, an access consulting firm and an architecture firm and then went out on my own a few years ago. That's so exciting. And thank you for sharing your story. I, I love hearing these stories of how these personal experiences really compel you to do architecture in a, in a different way in the world and how that can really then come about sort of really growing something that's absolutely incredible and I'm sure life-changing for, for loads of people. So I know that when I studied architecture, it was a long time ago at the University of New South Wales. We really, it's like you said, I remember only just doing one exercise that looked at accessibility and it was, uh, we had to break into groups of three and one of us, I think, was in a wheelchair. One of us was wearing goggles that gave you a particular yeah. type of visual impairment. I think they're still doing this exercise. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, we had to get from one end of campus to the other and it was at the time when University of New South Wales just had, I mean, I'm sure it's, I think it still does, the big stairs through the middle. So you literally like the, we had to actually get a map of the university campus that I'd been on for several years to find all of the pathways through the various buildings to then go in lifts, to then go up to the next level, to come out at a different exit, at, you know, to be able to bypass the stairs that everybody else got to take through the middle of campus. And it was, yeah, it was incredible. And I know when I, halfway through my degree, I um, I was traveling overseas, I broke my leg and had to have a massive knee reconstruction. And so for my next semester, I was on crutches for about seven months with a big knee brace and everything like that. And and our project was a, was a big kind of greenfield project and I couldn't even have a look at the site, you know? So it was just this thing of like, you just, you don't even, when I think, when we think of accessibility requirements, we think of people in wheelchairs, people who are permanently disabled and dealing with physical hindrances to their ability to move about the world. But, you know, I, like somebody like me who just ended up being on crutches for seven months, you know, just, and and it, it impacted everything in my life for that period of time that was really, really challenging. So, um, Absolutely. So, yeah. And parents, parents with prams. And it's interesting what you say, because uh, there are certainly not enough architects with disability with lived experience and I think that is partly because of the physical accessibility of the universities um, but also the courses. So um, I'm about to embark on a project at Melbourne University to try and work on some of those issues um, but that's probably a whole nother podcast. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds exciting. I'll have to get you back on for that one. That one sounds amazing. Um, so Honeycomb Access and Design, you provide a range of services from design consulting through to preparing performance solutions, also livable housing assessments. So when it comes to individual residential homes, which is what most of the undercover architect community are doing, they're thinking about their new build or the renovation project. What does it look like if they wanted to work with Honeycomb Access and Design? How do you get involved and when do you get involved and how do you sort of work with people? Because I know you do a big range of project types. What does it look like in regards to an individual home? Yeah, so obviously it does depend on the family and the home. I've done a lot of home modifications and designed sensory gardens and done modifications to bathrooms and also done the compliance stuff. Like you said, LHA, I work with NDIS provisions as well for, for SDA um, and lots of apartment buildings. Um, and so obviously the client is the is the main point of call for, for each project. And it depends on what the family needs. 
in the context of this new livable housing design standard, um, I'd say the best way to involve a consultant like myself would be early on in the process. And I think we, we would say that for any service that Honeycomb provides, the earlier on the better, so that we can give advice that's going to really carry the project through to construction with as little issues uh, as possible. So, yeah, I'd say looking at the concept before it goes to planning and and then making sure that all of those provisions are really maintained um, up until the point that the surveyor or the certifier, certifier gets involved and um, up until completion. Okay. And I'm sure we'll hear more as we go on about what some of those that problem solving and some of that advice might look like um, because I can imagine, you know, that with your architectural knowledge and experience and training there's a whole nother layer of, of opportunity in terms of how you might look at things alongside the accessibility and those kinds of things. So I think it's going to be really good to dive into that. Yeah. I, want to, um, I want to just chat about the National Construction Code 2022 for a moment, though. The changes have, that have been made, there's a big update, obviously, and we've been going through in this series talking largely about uh, the environmental sustainability and uh, condensation management, all of those kinds of building envelope and thermal um, changes that have been made. Um, but uh, there's obviously a significant uh, update in terms of the accessibility requirements and um, what's been called livable housing. So in the people that you're speaking with, in colleagues, in speaking to clients and things like that, how are you finding people are wrapping their heads around these changes? Obviously, they've not been adopted in every state just yet. And we're still seeing that those timelines seem quite extended for some locations around the country. Do you, do you, how do you see people are kind of taking these on board and do you feel like these changes are actually moving things in the right direction or is there anything that's still missing that um that you think is sort of a great big gaping hole in what we need to consider when it comes to our building codes and regulations in this area yeah absolutely big question great quest great questions um yes it's definitely a big update and with any update I think the construction industry goes like ah you know we've got this big transition what do we do I think for home or for homeowners, you know, they should be reassured that most of the changes aren't that drastic. And I think in 10 years time, we're going to look back and go, oh my gosh, like, why did we freak out about this? Um, it's really minor. I think the biggest change is probably to do with the, the entrance to the house being step free. So I live in a 1920s house and there are two little steps to get in. And, you know, those two little steps are okay for an able-bodied person, but as soon as you have a pram or someone who's older trying to get in it's just such a pain so there are a lot of benefits that I think we'll all feel with the change um, and then a lot of the other things that are implemented are really quite minor for most for most cases um, we can talk in detail in a moment I might just kind of take a step back and talk a little bit of context if that's, if that's yeah that'd okay. be perfect thank you yep so I guess without diving too deeply into the problem and to keep it simple, we know in Australia that there is a housing crisis and a homelessness crisis and it's only worsening. And this crisis disproportionately impacts older adults and people with disability, um, I guess due to housing affordability, availability, but also accessibility. So in Victoria, we have uh, the big housing build, which includes requirements for all new public housing to meet certain accessibility requirements, but that's really livable housing Australia. So it's more yet yeah, livability more than I'd say accessibility. So more catering to people to age in place or adapt their homes more easily. 
We also have the better apartment design standards, which include some accessibility features, and it's required for about 50% of apartments. But I, I really question some of those features and there are still lots of gaps within those standards. So up until now for single residences, single dwellings, you know, your class 1A, we've had no accessible requirements or, or, or features. So in 2017, the government went, okay, let's do something about this. Um, we know we've got the LHA standards, so why don't we think about adapting that into the NCC? And so in 2021, the Commonwealth State and Territory Building Ministers agreed to do this. Um, but as you said, not all states are, are opting in. Some have opted out. So we know that New South Wales and WA currently are not going to adopt the, the standards, which is pretty upsetting. And the, I think uh, Northern Territory and Queensland have already adopted it, but it is going to be a slow process because if someone's already started a design for their home um, before that adoption date, so before the 1st of October this year in those two states, then their certifier or surveyor will probably still be assessing their home under the previous NCC. So it's still going to take some time and we don't have so much knowledge yet of how it's all uh, rolling out. Um, I spoke to a certifier in Queensland yesterday, for example, and he said, yep, it's been around since October, but we haven't yet had one because of that retrospective application. So I think time will tell what this all looks like. And I think we will adapt. And I think the transition will feel less scary as time moves on. So yeah, I, I, I think the other interesting thing just to point out here is that, yeah, they're really not enabling accessibility for someone with a typical disability, say someone in a wheelchair. So if you tick all the boxes of these requirements, you could have a house that is on a really steep site. So there would be no step-free pathway to your entry door. And then your entry door might be wide enough for a wheelchair, but in this case, you wouldn't actually get a wheelchair to that door. And then you just have a toilet on the ground floor and that toilet might have a certain, you know, the 900 by 1200 in front of it, which might let a wheelchair into the bathroom, but I'm not sure about transferring onto the toilet. Also, there's no requirements to have the grab rails in the first place installed. So that visitor in a wheelchair wouldn't be able to use that toilet probably. Um, and then there's no other requirements if you don't have any other rooms on that ground floor. So in essence, you could end up with a house on a steep site with steps and ramps and whatnot to get to the front door and just have a toilet on that ground floor that complies. And that would be it. And you would tick all the boxes, deemed satisfied, that would be it. Obviously that's not your typical home. And so most homes say on one level would have a nice step-free pathway to the front door. You could get through the front door, you'd have your 820 clear opening, and then the corridors would be at least a meter and you'd have a little bit of space in front of you, in front of your toilet. You'd have a shower in the corner of the room that was hopeless and step-free, and that's pretty much it. So I think the entrance and possibly that toilet on the ground floor, so for some people it's like the powder room if they've got a two-level um, house, those would be the things to think about that might change how they were initially planning their renovation or their new build. Gotcha. I think you make a really good point, and I want to dive into that a little bit um, further into our conversation about livable and accessible not being the same thing. And I think this is the thing is that what I'm seeing in the conversations 
online, particularly from those that are super resistant to these updates, is that there's a confusion between what those what those requirements are for compliance versus what you know accessibility requirements might traditionally be. And so I think it's really good to sort of unpack this in in more detail. I'm going to read out some of the stuff that I actually said right back at the beginning of this NCC update series because I had a couple of episodes at the beginning that went through the structure of the change because obviously the change to the structure of the National Construction Code has been a really big, that's been a really big change that everybody professionally has had to wrap their head around, which is largely about bringing being able to bring the NCC into an online um, interactivity a lot more effectively. And it's been really fascinating. I think, you know, I recorded that episode obviously some time ago. I've been inside the NCC 2022 a lot more since then. And and it does work so much better for interacting with an online Copy environment. Copy pasting yeah. things in an email and finding the the um, reference images and I, yeah, I do, using the I internal think. search and everything. Yeah, it's just, it's made made life a lot easier. And then I had another episode, which was just basically going through the specific changes. So um, it was episode 286. And I said, the ABCB standard provides a set of technical provisions that if complied with, enable dwellings to better meet the needs of the community, including older people and people with mobility limitations. It's not an exact replication of the livable housing design guidelines. And I've I've been talking about the livable housing design guidelines for some time inside Undercover Architect. They've been a really great resource for loads of people who are looking at renovating or building. They've got elderly parents who might be moving in or they've got, um, they know that they want to age in place. And so they're thinking about how do they need to accommodate that in their planning for their home. And those livable housing guidelines have been a really great kind of pathway for them to know of the things to be aware of. Um, I also said that it doesn't match uh, AS1428.1, Design for Access and Mobility General Requirements for Access, New Building Work, and it doesn't intend to. So it may not accommodate all needs, which is what you've just touched on. It's intended to be helpful in the majority of cases for occupants. And the document that is our that that is the livable housing um, uh, addendum to the NCC that needs to be navigated is not intended to be read in isolation. You have to refer to it when you're navigating the NCC. Uh, it's similar to the Livable Housing Guidelines silver level requirements and the ABCB apparently intends to publish a non-mandatory version that is based on the gold level requirements so that you can apply for a higher level voluntarily if you actually want to. The standard is covering, and you touched on some of these things, so dwelling access, so arriving at the dwelling from the street, the dwelling entrance, so entering the home itself, internal doors and corridors to assist with movement through the home, the sanitary compartment, which is that downstairs bathroom or wet area, relating to toilet location and access, the shower and its access, and then reinforcement of bathroom and sanitary compartment walls to assist with accessibility in that zone as well. So, I wanted to dive into some of these individual areas with you and just tap into your kind of knowledge and, and you know, any tips that you can give the, the uh, undercover architect community. If we look firstly at the accessible pathways of travel, so those will include changes to the door widths, the hallway widths, the door, um, the level travel pathways from the car or the entry into the home. So what are your tips and things to remember and what you're seeing in the field with clients in regards to design and approvals when it comes to accessible pathways of travel? Yeah, as I mentioned, that step-free access path is probably the scariest change for builders and homeowners, partly because of the waterproofing requirements. But we are seeing a lot of options for how to do that. So having different drainage um, systems and doing you know strip drains and having falls in the right direction. I think just planning for that early on is just the best way to to go about that. 
there is also a requirement for a covered area or, you know, a landing porch or something in front of the front door, which I, I think most homes already do have. I think anyone who designs their front door without that, it's, it's really rare because, you know, you have your shopping and you're trying to get into the house and you want somewhere to put things. And all those Amazon deliveries that get left at home. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All the Amazon deliveries or Timu. I've been doing a lot of Timu shopping lately. Um, yeah. So it needs to be left somewhere that's, that's covered. So I think most, most homes have that anyway. So a few, a few things on that, I'd say a step-free path, I'd say would be my favorite requirement. It's really going to be helpful to parents who have prams, um, older people, and then, you know, maybe not the residents living with disability by having a friend come over so I have a, I had a friend come over for um um to come over uh, came over recently and she's in a wheelchair and um we're lucky that we've got two big double doors so we could just open both doors to get her wheelchair through but it would be really nice if there was a nice level step-free pathway to get into the house to be able to accommodate that um so I think that's a requirement that's it is a bit annoying and it's going to be tricky to navigate at first, but we're going to have a lot of precedents and ways to overcome that. And then everyone will really enjoy this requirement. And then, yeah, so that step-free access path can be from a car park or the garage. And if you can't provide it from the footpath, and then if you've got a really steep site, you don't have to satisfy this requirement. There is an exemption for it. So think a lot of homes in Sydney or Queensland would probably be facing some of those challenges, those site challenges. And so, yeah, they've acknowledged that and, and there is an exemption there. Ramps on a step-free path of travel are allowed, but the landing for those ramps uh, can't be on a footpath. Um, so that, again, it's just a, a detailed thing that should just be workshopped as early as possible in the design phase. But the entry door, and there are some differences to the LHA standards, the entry door is allowed to be made up of multiple doors. So you could have your, you know, 700 door, but there's another portion of that door that will make up the 820. So a bifold door or just multiple doors or double doors, um, that's allowed. The other difference I noticed from LHA is the, the threshold ramp. So if you have a slight you know, um, internal floor area that's raised, you can have a threshold ramp from your landing outside the front door to your internal floor area via a threshold ramp. LHA says that the maximum can be 56. This standard doesn't talk about a maximum. It just says that threshold ramp has to be the depth and width of the door jam. But if you had a really large door jam, what's to say that your internal height wouldn't be more than 56? So I guess that's another yeah, little... Yeah, no, and no grade because normally a, a, an accessible ramp needs to be a 1 in 14 grade in that 1428. Um, oh, so this one says a 1 in 8. Okay, right, which is still, it's one quite steep, isn't it? So, yeah. Yeah, which is steep. But it's normally to allow for a, a level change of, yeah, 30 mils to 40 mils that's, is, is the most common one, I'd say. And so these door requirements only apply to doors on the ground floor. So if you've got double story or more, then the doors on those upper levels don't have to have that 820 opening. And mostly specifying like an 870 leaf would get you that 820 clearance. But I think there is a misconception about the clearance. So it's measured when the doors open in a 90 degree position. Um, so if you have a door leaf that's say 920, your clear open width is going to be maybe 870. So you always have to specify a door leaf that's that's greater. But 
I'd say most architects or drafts people working on this would, would know that. Also, there is an allowance for split levels. So you can have a, a drop or a split level in on your ground floor. And a small difference as well I noticed between these standards and LHA is that the one metre corridor requirement is between the walls, not the skirtings. So you could have oh, okay. a one metre corridor measured between the walls and then you could have yeah your skirts beyond that. And so if you measured between the skirts, sometimes they can be quite thick. But this is all intended for new builds. And I'd say that means it's a lot easier to apply than retrospectively renovating. Yeah, it's just that thing, isn't it, that if you don't think about the dimensions first before you start designing that lower floor plan, then you could get yourself into real trouble once you hit your compliance requirements because if you haven't accommodated the hallway widths at the sizes that you want or you haven't planned for the rooms to have doors at the required width that they need, then that can become really problematic to try and shuffle everything around after the fact. And I think too, that accessible pathway um, to the front door has been one that a lot of people have balked at when they've thought about, well, I live on a sloping site, what am I going to do? Um, but as you say, if you, you know, you can obviously have it from the car parking space, from the garage. And so I think it makes really good sense in terms of, like you say, those it's not just for the friend that might be visiting or the elderly relative or those kinds of things, but even just, you know, I think of the times I've tried to move a fridge or a piano in and out of a house, <laughs> just little logistics that you have to go through because you've got stairs between, you know, you don't have any ability to, you've got to navigate a bunch of stairs and, and, and sometimes you're doing that downside pathways because you know that you can get up the side of the house and through big doors on the back of the house, but then you've got to yeah get past rainwater tanks or things like that. So a lot of this actually does set up the house for for greater functionality overall in terms of moving items in and out, and um, and it of course makes your home more inclusive for um, for people who might be visiting and also for you, you know, in terms of those things, those unexpected injuries or um, if life changes in terms of um, who might be living in the home and where they're at. So the bathrooms and wet areas. Um, so some of the changes, they're obviously going to impact the size of the spaces and the layout of the spaces to allow kind of the room around toilets, as you said, the detailing of, of hobbler showers, um, the construction choices for retrofitting grab rails, um, down the track. Cause as you said up, you know, earlier, it's not a requirement to have those up front, but you need to obviously be able to build in the capacity to do that. So what are your tips in regard to this and things that people need to remember um, when they're thinking about the bathrooms and their wet areas? Firstly, with the shower, I'd say without even looking at the standards and the requirements, you would probably design your shower to these standards at this point. I think most people now are doing um, a step-free hobless shower and it, there is an allowance for a, a lip. A lip is not considered a hob. So you can have something that prevents the water, you know, um, like a five mil rounded channel or something that's holding the door, the, the shower screen. That's not considered a hob. So as long as the waterproofing is done without the hob and without a step, then there is a little bit of flexibility around a, a screen. And that shower can be, yeah, on any level. It doesn't have to be on the ground level. The toilet, yes, is required on the ground level. But, and I don't know this for certain, um, but I think in Queensland there is there are some concessions for, for that. So um, I can look into that further, <laughs> but just from just conversations, I've, I've heard that there there is something there. Yeah, well, Queensland's interesting because it's not, it's not, it's actually referring the Queensland 
development code, it's not referring to the NCC. It's kind of adopted these changes inside a different format that you need to review. And then that format has actually been the thing that the Master Builders Association has then campaigned with the government to have um, amended and adjusted for Queensland housing quite separate to the NCC. And I was seeing, yeah, I got to see draft copies of MBA's comments on that document prior to it being kind of finalised. And it's been, it's it's so weird. Uh, like you see at this Just point in time. confusion. <laughs> you see at this point in time, like we're one country under one federal government, but we're not. No. So it's this odd thing, which as a, as a, yeah, it's so challenging, but, and I think it's, I totally get it when it's related to climate and housing types and things like that. But when it's something like this, that actually impacts kind of the, the way people can move in and out about their homes, I, I'm not quite sure why it needs to be on a state by state basis. So, but yeah, so that's why Queensland's oh, that's sort of confusing. a little bit of a satellite one to the NCC. So yeah. Okay, <laughs> and you can so see that, that obviously. may indeed. Yeah, you would have seen that in your, um, you know, when you go into the ABCB website and it's got the state, you know, the different dates that the state's adopting it and you go get to Queensland and it doesn't have dates. It's actually just got a reference to this different document that that that, that it's incorporated these things into. So, yeah. <laughs> okay. I found a couple of typos or mistakes on that anyway. Some of the adoption <laughs> dates in that table are different to the state government's uh, website on the adoption wow. timelines. Yeah. <laughs> Well, actually, while we're on that, I might just share the dates that I found in my most recent search. So, yeah, Northern Territory and Queensland apparently adopted already from the 1st of October 23. Um, the next in line will be ACT, 15th of Jan 2024. Uh, Victoria's due for 1st of May 24. Uh, South Australia and TAS is due for 1st of October 24. And as I said, unfortunately, New South Wales and WA at this stage are not adopting it. So back to bathrooms, the the requirement for grab, well, grab rails is not there. It's just to reinforce the walls so that they can be provided in the future. And I'd say on reinforcing that generally, I'd say sheeting provides more flexibility than, than noggins. And you can also reinforce walls with cavity sliders. The There is a requirement for baths that if there is a bath required, then you have to reinforce the wall adjacent to that bath. But if the bath is freestanding, then you don't need to. So if you want to provide a bath <laughs> and you don't want to add reinforcement, then um, just make it a freestanding bath. Undercover architect listeners will know that I do not like freestanding baths. So no. <laughs> why is that? I just find that they always get squeezed in spaces where they don't have enough room around them to provide decent maintenance. And yes. uh, okay, so yeah, yeah. so I've, I've never I've had, had one, so I can't. Um, <laughs> yes, but I, I can I can understand that cleaning those small spaces just accumulates dust and fair enough. The toilet doesn't actually have to be in the corner of a room, so. You could have your, you know, I'm just thinking to my first home, we had an ensuite and it was, you know, that typical sort of basin, then toilet, then shower. And so the toilet's not next to a wall, but there are certain clearances that you'd need to do to have the toilet centered between those two features and then have at least 900 clearance and you would reinforce the back wall to allow for a fall down grab rail. So that's another little thing to keep in mind. If you did have bedrooms on the ground floor and you wanted to satisfy that requirement via one of, say, the en-suites, you could do that in this way. I think if you're looking at a home, a house design that has all the bedrooms upstairs and so on the ground level, you've got your powder room, I'd say that's probably where your design would possibly differ to satisfy this 
these requirements because getting that 900 by 1200 zone in without the base and encroaching that, your little squeezy powder room becomes a little bit different. So that could be a little bit annoying. But I'd say, yeah, again, designing designing it out early on, um, figuring out how to do, you know, maybe a little recessed basin that tucks into the next room, which could be the laundry or the pantry or something like that, or the garage would probably mean you could design something still really beautiful that fits in into that puzzle slot really well. Yeah, I think when you read the standards for the first time, it looks very overwhelming and technical and involved but when you unpack it and actually see it in a design it doesn't look like there's anything so significant yeah no that's fantastic advice and I think that's the thing is that yeah I suppose we haven't experienced this level of constraint and rule making around how we might plan some of these dimensions and spaces previously and I think that's probably going to be the first a lot of homeowners are obviously wanting to know, you know, what are the recommended sizes for this? You know, I teach them inside my programs um, based on design experience, you know, what what should this space sort of roughly be for it to work and function and those kinds of things. How much space should you have around a toilet just so that, you you know, it, it do, it's not too big and it doesn't feel too squeezy. Then to have this other layer of compliance over the top of it in terms of those dimensions, I think that's where people may feel a little bit like it feels prickly and it's just that oh gosh it's just another thing to think of in the thousands and thousands of things that I need to think of um, when I'm navigating my project but as you say once you actually read through it it's not the the the, the impact is not so significant um, on a new build um, and it's obviously only applying to new builds at the moment and I think it's just then that thing as you say early on designing it in and if you find that you are on a challenging site like a sloping site or or you know some sort of arrangement that's going to make them difficult then working with your team to figure out what that compliance pathway is so and that's what I really wanted to go on to next because I know that you work um, with people doing performance solutions and sorry to cut you off there but that's it for part one of my conversation with Jenna in part two, we will jump into that discussion about performance solutions. Uh, and this is going to be an approval pathway to familiarise yourself within your project. I actually spoke about performance solutions with Laura Tanova from Deem to Perform back in episode 290. I'll pop a link to the resources, uh, to, to that episode in the resources for you. However, I really uh, think it's great for you to listen in on Jenna's take on this process in the next episode and what she's specifically seeing in how her clients are needing support and help in their projects with performance performance solutions. She also shares some specific examples related to these livable housing updates to the NCC 2022. Jenna will also share with you in the next episode what she believes are the no-brainer inclusions when designing your home so that it can support you long-term and be adaptable and flexible to your changing needs over time. So make sure you tune in for that discussion. Now, a few reminders before I finish up. Of course, if you'd like the transcript of this episode, you can also get the extra resources that we mentioned. You can find all of that at www.undercoverarchitect.com forward slash 303. That's the numbers 303 putting a call out for any professionals who are listening to this podcast and feel like-minded with what we teach here on Undercover Architect and would like to connect and work more closely with Undercover Architect community members on their projects, please check out Undercover Architects Army. You can submit your free uh, submission uh, by heading to undercoverarchitect.com forward slash A-R-M-Y. And of course, if you would like to save time, money and stress as you design, build or renovate your home, whoever you are working with, then Home Method is definitely the place for you. In it, you will learn specific steps to take 
the decisions that matter and how you can go about creating a functional feel-good home that you love living in and that makes yours and your family's lives better. Home Method, of course, is also the only place that you can access my personalised support and guidance for your project. And you'll also tap into the collective experience of the most amazing and super informed homeowners that are in that community as well. You can find out more about Home Method by heading to homemethod.com.au and also it's in the menu on Undercover Architects website. As always, thank you for tuning in and for letting me be your secret ally. Until next time, bye. Just a reminder, all content on this podcast is provided by Undercover Architect for reference purposes and as general guidance. It does not take into account specific circumstances and should not be relied on in that way. You should seek independent verification or advice before relying on this content in any circumstances, including but not limited to circumstances where loss and damage may result. The views and opinions of any guests on the podcast are solely their own and may not reflect the views of Undercover Architect. Undercover Architect endeavours to publish content that is accurate at the time it is published, but does not accept responsibility for content that may or has become inaccurate over time. 